Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you guys that have forgotten who I am, uh, my name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Aletheia Church. It's been a, uh, a great couple weeks here, usually over the summer. Uh, you know, one of the things we really, really value here uh, at Aletheia Church is um, raising up and discipling uh, you to become who God has called you to be. And so we've had a number of young men in our church uh, preach for you all over the, the last several weeks. Uh, they did an awesome job. Many of them gave hours and hours of their free time uh, during the week uh, to unpack the scriptures so that we might be encouraged and edified uh, by God's word. Uh, but now uh, you guys are stuck with the pastor again this week as we finish up uh, the book of James. Uh, parents, if you want to dismiss your kids uh, to Aletheia Jr., you can, although I've seen most of them are already heading out because you all already know the routine. Uh, if this is your first Sunday at Aletheia Church, uh, we have scripture journals for you that we would love to give out as our free gift to you. If you want one of those, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring those around to you. Uh, we highly value God's word here and want you to have that. Uh, and it's just an opportunity for you to be able to follow along uh, in the scripture with us, but also take some notes if you want. So just raise your hand um, if that is something you would like uh, free of charge, just a gift to you because we love you and God loves you. Um, so as we've studied this letter that James wrote to these churches uh, over the last couple of months, we've seen a number of things as we've been processing through this together. And, and that first Sunday that, that I started uh, uh, this, this section in the book of James, as, as I said, that, that James um, starts off by addressing uh, these churches by saying there is a purpose to suffering. You know, most of the time when we're suffering and we're facing difficulty in our life, uh, we struggle to see that there is any good that could come from it. And one of the things that James wants these churches to understand, and if we know anything about the historical context that was going on with these churches, the, the, the men and women that he's writing to in this letter were facing far more than probably the worst that any of us will ever face in our lifetime, at least here in the United States. And maybe I'm wrong and the cultural landscape will change drastically. But the, but the level of persecution that these men and women were facing was pretty severe. We're talking loss of job, uh, rejection of family, forced relocation, uh, poverty, uh, sickness. You know, there's a number of things that they were walking through. And so they were walking through a really, really difficult season in their life. And what James wants them to understand is, hey, God has a purpose behind all of that. That the same way that the Son of God had a purpose in his suffering to rescue and redeem and save us from our sin, that their suffering had a purpose as well, primarily for their own spiritual growth and steadfastness as they grow in patience and love for God. And if we understand then that this letter is a, a lot of really practical insight on how to walk through suffering well as Christians, we'll see a number of different things. Right? For example, we talked about being hearers and doers of God's word uh, and that faith without works was dead. Because, it's, because if your faith is dead when suffering comes, you will stop walking with the Lord. If you have a dead faith when the going gets tough, your faith will leave and you will begin resting on the things of this world to bring relief and comfort to your life. 
Because faith, as we've seen in the book of James, will always, eventually, over the course of your lifetime, lead to more obedience and a greater love for God. And then we also have seen, as we've studied this together, that that there's a lot of practical things that James thinks we should be placing value on in our lives as we seek to become more like Jesus, that we would tame our tongues, that we would take seriously the allure of the world and not fall in love with it, that we would live with integrity in all areas of our lives, including how we spend and manage our finances. And so overall, this letter has been an immensely kind of practical manual on how to process through living life as a Christian and suffering well. And as we get to our final couple of verses here at the end of James chapter 5, we're going to see that James is going to give a call to us, his readers, to think of one thing in light of everything that we've looked at so far in this letter. And that is the importance and primacy of prayer in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. See, he's going to give a number of different circumstances that we as the readers may find ourselves in. But the response or the command to every one of those circumstances is going to be the same. And that's prayer. That talking and communicating and entering into the presence of God is vitally important as we continue to grow as followers of Jesus. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me just to to start so we can kind of see this point that James is trying to make. He said, is anyone among you suffering? By the way, that's kind of a rhetorical question. He knows the answer to that. But look at his response. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of of the Lord. See, he gives three separate scenarios there, right? He says, hey, if you're suffering, pray. There's an assumption there behind that, that call to prayer is that God is able and will deliver you. Right? He says, if you're cheerful, meaning if you're actually in a season where life seems to be full of blessing and things are going well, right? He says, sing praise. And the, and, the, and the thought behind that or the message behind that is that when, when we're singing and we're praising, and, and this is one of the things that I, I mentioned to you guys months and months ago when we were in 1 Corinthians together, that when we gather on Sunday mornings, the focus and the attention of our time here on Sunday mornings is first and foremost the glory of God and bringing praise and honor to him. You know, one of my favorite lines of all time comes from Francis Chan. It's a story he told about the church that he pastored when he was in San Francisco. And, 
you know, he's a much more gifted communicator than I am and, and gifted pastor, so he can get away with saying this to someone in his congregation to their face. But this lady walked up to him and said, you know, hey, pastor, I really, really enjoyed your message this morning. Thank you so much. Uh, but, you know, like, I just, you know, I, I, I wasn't feeling worship this morning. I wasn't feeling it. And he looked at her and said, well, good, it wasn't for you. We came here to worship God, not you this morning. Right, and, and, and the point behind that, as, as, as maybe harsh or direct as that approach may have been, still stands true. That if you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus here this morning, right, the reason we came here first and foremost was not to see friends or, or family or enjoy the scones that are out in the lobby or the, or the coffee, or if you're a parent, to pass your kids off for a few hours so you can just get a mental break. Now, we're here this morning to sing of the glory of our creator and who he is. Because we truly believe he is good as he says, he is as good as he says he is in his word. And that when we're in a season of blessing or cheerfulness, right, we sing praise as an, as an act of worship to God, but we're communicating to him thanks because we know it is because of him that we experience that. And then he says, if you're sick, right, have the elders pray over you and anoint you. And basically what he's saying there is that even when you are too low to pray yourself, you should have other brothers and sisters who you know love God and seek him, petition and pray for God to move in your life. See, James's point to us whether we are in a season of persecution, hardship, suffering, or blessing, that it does not matter what our circumstances are. God's command to us is always the same, that we should be going to him in prayer and viewing that as a vital and instrumental portion of our walk with him. See, I think James feels a need to finish up this letter by addressing prayer for some very specific purposes and reasons. Because you would think, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, you would think that religious people would view prayer as something that we should regularly do. Right? It, would, it would stand to reason philosophically to say, well, that's just something religious people do. They pray regularly. That's, that's what they're supposed to do. It's just a part of their routine. It's who they are. But James knows and understands that as human beings, we tend to have a tendency to lean towards self-sufficiency instead of trusting and turning to God for help when we need it. I mean, think about even the examples of self-sufficiency that James presented in this letter as he wrote to them. If you go back to James chapter 1, look at verses 7 and 8 with me from, from James chapter 1. Look at what he says. He's just got done telling the church that if they lack wisdom to go to God and ask for it in prayer. All right, and look at what he says in verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's referring to someone who's, who's doubting whether God will give him wisdom or not. For he is double, he is a double-minded man, unstable 
in all his ways. Or he says, for, for the followers of Christ that seek wisdom on how to operate through the various trials and circumstances of life, it should be an automatic given that we would go to God and ask for him wisdom. Whether that wisdom would be a direct answer on what we're supposed to do in a given situation or simply to ask for the Holy Spirit to keep us from folly, that it is wise for us to go to God for wisdom. But the person that James is describing here in James chapter 1 is, is, is someone that claims to be a follower of God, might even go to him and ask for wisdom, and yet in his self-sufficiency would also go to the world for solutions on how to get themselves out of the situation they find themselves in. Israel did this a lot in the Old Testament. They would have uh, altars and they would have the tabernacle for Yahweh, but then they would also create altars for the Ashtaroth or for Baal. Because they didn't really love God or seek him for his power and his wisdom and his might. They were simply looking to be released from the difficult circumstances. And their thought process was, I don't really care which God does it. I just don't want to be in hardship anymore. And I've been a follower of Jesus long enough to know that just because we might not build altars to Baal or to the Ashtaroth or whatever else it may be, that we have a propensity to look to money, relationships, education, prestige, jobs, and we will sacrifice on those altars instead of heading to the one who actually has the power to deliver. And James's encouragement to us is go to God. For he is the only one who is able to deliver in those moments. Now, not only were those that James is writing to struggling with double-mindedness, but they also struggled with spiritual adultery, right? Look at what he says in, starting in verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And then go down to verse 26 with me. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is what? Worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right, James's point there when we were back in, in James chapter 1 was is it's really difficult for, it's really easy to claim that you love and follow God, but at the end of the day, your works will always display whether that is actually true or not. You know, if, if I claim to love my wife, Jackie, but then never help around the house, Never spend time with my kids. Never spend time with her. Spend time going out and, and committing adultery and spending time with other women. All right, and then I told you, well, I love my wife. What would you think if you knew my life, but then I profess that to you? This guy's a liar. He's a hypocrite. He doesn't really love his wife, or he would remain loyal and faithful to her alone. And James's point here at the end of James chapter 1 is that we have a propensity, both in our self-sufficiency, but just in our very nature, 
to run towards spiritual idolatry where we claim that we might love God, that we love Jesus and what he's done, yet we refuse to obey and seek him. And in that, right, if we run after the things of the world, we might not think about it, but one of the primary things that ends up happening to us is we end up producing a dependence upon the things of this world, and we reduce dependence upon God, therefore producing a dead faith. And a dead faith almost always produces a life of prayerlessness because there is no need for God. And so as James here at the end of chapter 5 talks about the importance of prayer, right? I don't want you to see this as just a, another one-off thing that James is touching on, but that, that I actually believe that what he's saying here at the end of, of James chapter 5 actually connects to everything he's been saying up until this point in this letter. And that that is this, that the call of a believer is to an active, living, real faith and dependence upon Jesus Christ in all things. And in that faith and dependence, prayer is actually a marker and a response to active faith in our lives. It displays that we're not double-minded, but that we actually seek God. It displays that we don't have spiritual allegiances that are split between God and others. But that prayer is how we continue to remind ourselves of our own need for God to move and act. And it is a profession of dependence upon him for all things. So let's dive a little bit deeper into the text. And hopefully we'll be encouraged to view prayer as not just something we do, but a vital part of our walk with Jesus. And an active move that will drive us closer to God. So three things I think James kind of shares with us about prayer as we look through this text. The first one is this. Prayer is powerful. That there actually is prayer, that there actually is power behind praying. Look, look at the promise that James makes to us in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Right, there's two words I want you to notice in, in that verse. The first one is the word saved. That, that word can mean multiple things in the Greek uh, in, in regards to what you're being saved from. It can mean a a, a physical healing, a type of physical healing where there's some sort of physical ailment and God himself heals you, or it can also refer to spiritual healing that's needed because of the sinfulness of mankind. Now, you also need to look at the word forgiven there because what James is promising for those that go to God in prayer, that God has the power to then deliver you from whatever has a hold of your life, save you from it, and then not just pull you out of it, but then forgive you and heal you from it. 
Right? Like, if, if you think about, right, various situations that people can find themselves in, right, the totality of the power of what God is able to do when we go to him in prayer is to both pull you out of the dangerous situation, whatever is harassing you or holding you down or entrapping you or enslaving you, that God actually delivers, saves, rescues, forgives, heals, and protects. That's the type of power we're talking about here. The ability of God to rescue and save. And I'm not entirely sure if James is referring here in in chapter 5 to some sort of physical disability or ailment, or if he's referring to the actual spiritual condition of us, the readers, where we might have just become fallen sick and entrapped to sin. I'm not entirely sure what he's referring to. But here's what I would say. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 9... I think overall, God doesn't really care. Because sometimes you'll even see inside of Scripture that there is a a connection between physical distress or sickness and sin. Think about this famous story of Jesus healing the paralytic here in Matthew chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I I want you to just pause and think about this for a moment, right? If If you had the inability to move your extremities, and you hear about this guy who can work miracles and can make the blind see and the deaf hear and those that are lame walk again, and you're brought before this guy, and this guy looks at you and says, your sins are forgiven, what do you think your probably first gut reaction is going to be? What the heck, man? Like, come on. What are you doing? And yet look at the response of the Pharisees to Jesus. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You know, whether James is referring to an actual physical ailment here or just simply the need for forgiveness of sin, I think Jesus displays back in this example in Matthew chapter 9 that our need for physical healing is not the only thing in life that we tend to become so transfixed on the present and that God has a much more holistic view of what it means to be healthy. That the condition and nature of your heart, and if it's sick with sin and a lack of love for God, is a far greater ailment than being unable to walk. And the beauty 
of what James is showing us here is whether you are sick, hurting, broken, enslaved to sin, or suffering, the first thing that we can do is turn to God to prayer. And in that, God delivers, forgives, saves, and rescues because he is able. And prayer actually has power behind it. And guys, I, I understand, you know, one of the first things I thought through as I was reading this and I saw that, I was like, this is so uh, counter to what many of us believe about the world around us. This, this is just not, this is not intuitive for us at all. At least not to the way I grew up. I remember hearing things like this growing up, right? Pick yourselves up by your own bootstraps, right? No one's going to do it but you, right? If you want something right, do it yourself, right? Even the, the modern day versions of this, right? You've got this. Keep going. You can do it, right? Or my personal favorite, right? Shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land among the stars, right? Don't know what that means totally, because if you miss the moon, you will just die. <laughs> but over the years, right, there's this, there's this propensity for us, right, culturally, right, to teach self-sufficiency and self-reliance at all costs. That's kind of how we've been conditioned. And I think even inside of the church, I've noticed this tendency for us to either implicitly or explicitly with our words, communicate to people a great lie. Where we, where we end up either by uh, our actions unintentionally communicating or by our words intentionally communicating to somebody, get your life together and then you can come to God. There might even be some of you in here this morning that believe that. I don't even know why I'm here. My life's a mess. I'm a wreck. Right? Those words about spiritual adultery, they described me. Prayerlessness, that, that describes me. Dead faith, that, that describes me. And, and if, if you don't hear anything else this morning, right, if that is you, hear this from me. God's directions to you are not to get your life together and then come to him. God's directives to you is come to him broken and dependent and ask him to save you. And there is power in that prayer because the gospel of Jesus Christ says something different to us than anything else in the world. Right? See, the gospel of Jesus Christ says to us, you can't do this on your own. You can't fix this on your own. You can't be delivered on your own power and merit. Come to God. He is able to deliver you. And the way that you do that is you ask in prayer by faith. And in that, God's power shines through. See, it's not even, you know, one of the things that I, that I fear that can sometimes come from this is you'll develop this, this discipline of praying, thinking because you prayed, you have the power because you did something as if God is the genie in the bottle. And because you spoke, God is obligated to respond to you. 
No, prayer is us going in dependence, begging God to move, and God responds not because he owes it to you, but because he loves you and cares for you, because he keeps his promises, because he's a loving God who you can trust. And one of the beautiful things we even see here in these first couple of verses of James chapter uh, 5 here at the end of our text is that even if you're too weak to pray, right, even if you are in a season of life where things are so broken that you are too weak yourself to pray, he says there in verse 16, ask somebody else to do it for you and God will hear it. God designed his people to live in community and there is power in that when we pray for one another. Now, I remember when I was a relatively new believer, and man, my life was just an absolute hot mess. I was a junior in college. I had not walked with God at all for the first 20-some years of my life. And so every time I was opening the Word of God and seeing the commands of God and seeing what it meant to follow Jesus and being convicted by the Holy Spirit to follow Him in fidelity and to walk with integrity, every time I would like turn the page, there'd be something new. I was like, well, I don't do that. Turn the page. Well, I don't do that. Turn the page. Well, I don't do that. I turned the page. Well, I didn't know that. And, and after about three months of that, I was a, a mess. It's just like, man, like I, and I remember going to a campus meeting one Friday night on my campus. And the guy that was there that night, he just happened to be talking about sexual sins. Somebody had invited me to talk to it, uh, to, to the talk. And he, he's going through this message. And then they had put people around the room to pray with afterwards. Right. And my wife will tell you this. Right? As I'm up here talking about the need to not be self-sufficient and not rely on others and, and, and to rely on God alone, right? I'm one of the chief perpetrators of the very sin I'm calling us not to fall into. I learned at a young age, like, if you want something done, do it on your own. You can't trust people. They'll, just, they'll, they'll take advantage of you, do everything yourself, right? And so I, I spent a good majority of my life trying to do things and work things out my own way. And I'm sitting there, and here I am hearing this, and the Holy Spirit just came upon me while I was in that room. I mean, just absolutely crushed me, convicted me of sin. God wanted to release me from the stranglehold that sexual sin had on my life. And so I'm like, hey, I'm going to go. I'm going to go pray with one of these people around the room. I don't even know who any of these people are, but I'm just going to go pray with a complete stranger in this room. I've ne- I don't think I've ever seen the guy that prayed for me, by the way, again in my entire life. So I walk up to this guy, and he's like, hey, can we pray together? And I went to start talking, and guys, I cannot explain it. I could not audibly make noises with my mouth. And <laughs> I'm just like sobbing. And this poor guy is like, um, okay, like, what, do, what do I do with this? He's like, do you want me to pray for you? And I'm like, yes. Guys, there will be moments in our life whether through physical ailment or brokenness over sin or no matter what is going on, that you will not actually physically be able to go to the Lord in prayer yourself. And the beauty of of the church community is that God has raised up others, brothers and sisters in your life to stand in the gap and pray for you. And here's what I'll tell you about that prayer. God answered that guy's prayer. As he prayed over me that God would forgive me, that I would experience and feel that forgiveness, that God would deliver me from my sin, God answered him. Because God is able and because there is power in prayer. The second thing we see is this, right? The first one is that prayer is powerful. The second thing we see is this, prayer is effective. So it's one thing for there to be power behind something, 
right? But you can have all the power in the world, but if you're not doing it the right way, it has no effect on everything going on around you. Look at what James says, starting in verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You know, one of my favorite pastors and theologians to listen to is a guy by the name of Sam Albury, and he says this in regards to prayer. He says, many of us do not pray because we don't believe it is an effective use of our time. And if we do pray, we often view it as a token activity without thinking anything major will happen in response. And James actually says, our thought, if that is our thought about prayer, could not be more untrue. That oftentimes, actually, prayer is effective, and it's the most effective thing we can do with our time. Even when things are not going according to how we're praying, we can look to Elijah and his example and say, keep praying. Right? Because what we see from Elijah there is Elijah, and, and oftentimes we do this with, with people we read in the Old Testament, right? We see them and we think, oh, well, I can't be like that person. They, they've achieved a level of spirituality that I'll never achieve. And so when we see Elijah praying or whatever else, we can't really put ourselves in Elijah's shoes because he's like a level of spirituality that I haven't reached yet. And what James says is actually Elijah is a man and a follower of God just like us. And when you get to 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, if you know anything about the story of Elijah, there was a drought that was going on in Israel during this time, and it was actually a punishment from God on King Ahab and Israel for their idolatry. Like God had said, enough is enough. But one of the things you, you, you notice is there's a story behind that drought. Because Elijah prayed, and if you look in 1 Kings, you'll notice Elijah prayed fervently. That means he prayed regularly, often. So I don't know if it was every day, multiple times a day, but that he regularly prayed. And what he was praying is he kept asking God, hey, God, will you actually bring a drought so we don't have food in this country? Because we need Israel to be brought to the point of dependence for them to wake up and realize what they're doing. And if you know anything about the story, as he prayed, there was three and a half years of drought. Then... After three and a half years, he changed his prayer because he wanted Israel to see that God is powerful, can do whatever he wants. He started praying, boom. God answers that prayer. What happens? Rain starts, crops start growing, fruits around, everyone's eating again. Because prayer has an effect, not just in being answered, but in displaying God's power to us and revealing the power of God to others. And so what inevitably happens, right, when, when we start talking about prayer and we say, well, prayer is powerful and prayer is effective, what I inevitably hear as a, as a pastor is like, well, pastor, like, look, like, I get that, that God's word says that we should be praying and that God promises that, that he, he hears it and that he responds. But when, when I pray, my prayers aren't being answered. I don't, I don't see the power. I don't see the effectiveness like Elijah. Why? Why, why is that? And I can't answer that for you every single time. I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not God. 
But what I will say is oftentimes I think prayers go unanswered because they are not in line with God's purposes or his promises. You know, there's a reason why Elijah's prayers were answered, maybe even as bizarre as they were, if you consider it bizarre to pray for suffering and difficulty and drought. But think about what was going on in Israel. Right? Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18 with me real quick. I want to look at this specifically so we can see what God was doing. Look at verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Right? So this drought has happened. Everything's going on. And the drought was going on. And basically what Elijah had been saying throughout this whole time to Israel is like, you guys are committing spiritual adultery. You're worshiping Baal. God is angry. This drought is God's, God's fault because he's disciplining you. And the people of Israel are like, eh, whatever. Like, we don't believe you. And so finally, they get to this point here where he calls King Ahab and the prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel, where they're going to have like a moment where it's like, well, let's see which God is the real God. And look what happens. Some of you guys may be familiar with this story. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? See what he's saying? Spiritual adultery. You think you love Yahweh one moment and you love Baal the next moment. You're just looking for whatever works at any given moment. You don't actually love God. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull. I will lay it on the wood. And put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. All right, so Elijah has come to this point where he's like, all right, it's time for God to show you what's up. Right, you've committed spiritual adultery enough. Enough is enough. And Elijah Look at the confidence he has in doing this. He's not confident in himself. He doesn't think he's, he's like, I'm one guy against 450. But he knows God is going to put Baal and Israel in their place. And so if you know anything about the story, right, Baal's prophets cut up the, 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 the bull and they put it on the altar and they, they're screaming and they're dancing and laughing and Elijah mocks them. It's one of my kids' favorite stories if like we, we have the little Bible app and we watch it and the, the Baal's prophets are dancing all around and Elijah's just laughing in the background and my youngest son Josiah laughs every time we see that because he's like, <laughs> like, look, they're so silly. I'm like, yes, they look like fools. Right? And the best part about that whole story is Elijah actually ends up saying, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. Now, he can't hear you yell louder. And then Elijah makes his own altar and to kind of pour some salt on the wound for Baal's followers and Baal prophets, he says, all right, I want you to bring me a bunch of water and dig a trench around my altar. And he pours so much water on it that it fills the entire trench around the altar. Now, if I, don't, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but you tend to not try to light things on fire that are wet because it doesn't work. 
And so just to make sure that he's making his point, he's like, okay, you guys couldn't get your, your fire to light. I don't want you guys to think for any reason that I was able to conjure up fire and make this happen. So pour a bunch of water on there, right? He pours, he pours the water on and then go over to verse 36 with me and look at what happens. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, look what happens here. What does Elijah do? He's going to pray. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God shows up. Now why? Is it because Elijah is better than us? Is it because Elijah has achieved some level of of spiritual perfection that would force God to answer him? No. No, the reason God answers this prayer is because Elijah knows that God is after his own glory and after his own people. And that this type of prayer would do two things. It would reveal the glory and power of God to a wayward and straying people. And it would cause them to return to him. See, church, I want you to think about this for a second. God loves and delights in bringing back straying and rebellious sinners to himself. He loves it. And Elijah knows this. And he believes that God acts on his own promises and desires. And he prays for that and God answers. And so maybe if you're sitting there thinking about and contemplating why your prayers are not being answered, it's not because God is not able. Sometimes I think maybe our prayers aren't being answered because they're actually in opposition to what God wants to do in you and in the lives of those around you. And God God withholding things from you that you might be praying for, you may not know this now, it may end up being the best thing God ever did for you. Or it may end up being the best thing God ever did for somebody else. Because prayer is powerful and prayer that is in line with the heart and will of God is effective. The last thing that we'll see is this. Prayer changes us and changes others. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. As I said earlier, we have a tendency to be self-absorbed even in prayer. 
We pray solely about our own desires and wants. And here's, here's the beautiful thing about God. Even in that, as we go to him, God meets us. And one of the things that happens as we pray is that God changes us. And what will happen is, especially if you're praying for others, the more you pray for others, here's what you'll start to realize. You care less and less about self and more and more about others. And then one of the beautiful things that I see happening inside the church, the body of Christ, is that if there is a church that is consistently praying for one another and praying for people that, that are in need, God changes us and he often uses us to be the very instruments he needs to help meet those needs and change people's lives. And when you see God start to use you and change others, I promise you this, the allure of the promises of the world do not stand in comparison to the work and power of God as he changes and brings broken, sinful people back to him. And so as we pray, right, James's encouragement to us is this. God wants to use you to see others rescued and brought back to him the same way he used Elijah to bring Israel back. Because he cares and because we ask. You know, one of the things I, I love and I'm so proud of our church for is a couple years ago when we started our study in the book of Acts, and it's been years at this point. We've gone even through a global pandemic since then. As we started something that we called the One Campaign. And we just asked everybody in the church to write down the name of one person that they knew did not know Jesus, that they wanted to see God save. Because we've seen Tons of people come to faith in Christ from us writing down their names and committing to pray for those people. Some of you in this room this morning were somebody's one at one point. We've seen people get saved. We've seen them be baptized because prayer is powerful. It is effective when it's in line with God's will for his people. And prayer changes us and changes others because God is able and so here's how I want to finish our time this morning. I want to encourage us about prayer. Guys, prayer is not a just a, some spiritual discipline or thing that God demands of us to do so that we can check it off of a list. Prayer is access to communicate to the creator of the universe. Think about that for a second. If you are a follower of Jesus in this room this morning, you have 24-7 access to the creator of the universe. Not his second in command, Right? Not, not middle management somewhere down the supply chain. No, you have access to the creator of the cosmos. The one who formed you in your mother's womb. The one who set the sun in its position and caused the planets to rotate and revolve around it. 
the one who set up seasons, biospheres, weather patterns, oxygen, an atmosphere. You have access to go to him. Because 2,000 years ago, after we see throughout the, the, the Old Testament, time and time again, we see this same story play out over and over again. God creates his people. God's people rebel. God's people get disciplined, but also get called back to him. Over and over again, God forgives. God is long-suffering. God is patient to forgive his people. Over and over again, we see it in, with Abraham. We see it with Isaac. We see it with Jacob. We see it with Moses. You'll see it again in the book of Judges because we're going to study that this fall. Constantly, God's people rebelled. God sent a leader to call them back to him. God's people re repented and God relented. And then what do they do again? It's like Groundhog Day over and over again. Some of you guys are too young to know that movie. Go watch it. It's really, really good. Right? Just stuck in a loop. Over and over again. And God is patient and long-suffering and forgiving. Until finally you get to the most important event in human history. The incarnation. Where Jesus Christ enters the world, lives a perfect life, and then chooses to surrender and give up that life as a payment for your rebellion and for mine and the sins of all mankind. And one of the beautiful things as you, as you read the Gospels and you hear about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, you see all sorts of imagery throughout those moments in the Gospels. And one of those moments is that inside the temple, at the moment that Jesus dies, the veil before the Holy of Holies was this curtain that sat before the Holy of Holies where no one was allowed to go to except the high priest once a year to offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for Israel. Guess what happened to that curtain? ripped from top to bottom. And what's being communicated to us in that moment is because of what Jesus Christ has done for every single one of us in this room is God has given us access to him. You don't have to go through some special spiritual practice. You don't need some priest to go and do it for you. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, every single one of us can talk to our Father. And he wants to talk to us.